Chapter 7, Section 1 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 7, Section 1 Reconstruction, Its Conditions and Purposes. The best method of approaching a critical reconstruction of American political ideas will be by means of an analysis of the meaning of democracy. A clear popular understanding of the contents of the democratic principle is obviously of the utmost practical political importance to the American people. Their loyalty to the idea of democracy, as they understand it, cannot be questioned. Nothing of any considerable political importance is done or left undone in the United States unless such action or inaction can be plausibly defended on democratic grounds, and the only way to secure for the American people the benefit of a comprehensive and consistent political policy will be to derive it from a comprehensive and consistent conception of democracy. Democracy as most frequently understood is essentially and exhaustively defined as a matter of popular government, and such a definition raises at once a multitude of time-honored, but by no means superannuated, controversies. The constitutional liberals in England, in France, and in this country, have always objected to democracy as so understood, because of the possible sanction it affords for the substitution of a popular despotism in the place of the former royal or oligarchic despotisms. From their point of view, individual liberty is the greatest blessing which can be secured to a people by a government and individual liberty can be permanently guaranteed only in case political liberties are in theory and practice subordinated to civil liberties popular political institutions constitute a good servant but a bad master when introduced in moderation they keep the government of a country in close relation with the well-informed public opinion which is a necessary condition of political sanitation but if carried too far, such institutions compromise the security of the individual and the integrity of the state. They erect a power in the state, which in theory is unlimited and which constantly tends in practice to dispense with restrictions. A power which is theoretically absolute is under no obligation to respect the rights either of individuals or minorities, and sooner or later such power will be used for the purpose of opposing the individual. The only way to secure individual liberty is, consequently, to organize a state in which the sovereign power is deprived of any national excuse or legal opportunity of violating certain essential individual rights. The foregoing criticism of democracy, defined as popular government, may have much practical importance, but there are objections to it on the score of logic. It is not a criticism of a certain conception of democracy, so much as of democracy itself. Ultimate responsibility for the government of a community must reside elsewhere. If the single monarch is practically dethroned, as he is by these liberal critics of democracy, some sovereign power must be provided to take his place. In England, Parliament, by means of a steady encroachment on the royal prerogatives, has gradually become sovereign, but other countries, such as France and the United States, which have wholly dispensed with royalty, cannot, even if they would, make a legislative body sovereign by the simple process of allowing it to usurp power, once enjoyed by the crown. France did, indeed, after it had finally dispensed with legitimacy, make two attempts to found governments in which the theory of popular sovereignty was evaded. 
the orleans monarchy for instance through the mouths of its friends denied sovereignty to the people without being able to claim it for the king and this insecurity of its legal framework was an indirect cause of a violent explosion of effective popular sovereignty in 1848. The apologists for the Second Empire admitted the theory of a sovereign people, but claimed that the sovereign power could be safely and efficiently used only in case it were delegated to one Napoleon III, a view the correctness of which the results of the imperial policy eventually tended to damage there is in point of fact no logical escape from a theory of popular sovereignty once the theory of divinely appointed royal sovereignty is rejected an escape can be made of course as in england by means of a compromise and a legal fiction but such an escape can be fully justified from the english national point of view but countries which have rejected the royal and aristocratic tradition are forbidden this means of escape if escape it is they are obliged to proclaim a theory of unlimited popular powers. To be sure, a democracy may impose rules of action upon itself, as the American democracy did in accepting the federal constitution. But in adopting the federal constitution, the American people did not abandon either its responsibilities or rights as sovereign. Difficult as it may be to escape from the legal framework defined in the constitution, that body of law, in theory, remains merely an instrument which was made for the people, and which, if necessary, can and will be modified. A people, to whom was denied the ultimate responsibility for its welfare, would not have obtained the prime condition of genuine liberty. Individual freedom is important, but more important still is the freedom of a whole people, to dispose of its own destiny. And I do not see how the existence of such an ultimate popular political freedom and responsibility can be denied by anyone who has rejected the theory of a divinely appointed political order. The fallibility of human nature being what it is, the practical application of this theory will have its grave dangers, but these dangers are only evaded and postponed by a failure to place ultimate political responsibility where it belongs. While a country in the position of Germany or Great Britain may be fully justified, from the point of view of its national tradition, in merely compromising with democracy other countries such as the united states and france who have earned the right to dispense with these compromises are at least building their political structure on the real and righteous source of political authority democracy may mean something more than a theoretically absolute popular government but it assuredly cannot mean anything less if however democracy does not mean anything less than popular sovereignty it assuredly does mean something more. It must at least mean an expression of the sovereign will, which will not contradict and destroy the continuous existence of its own sovereign power. Several times during the political history of France in the 19th century, the popular will has expressed itself in a manner averse to popular political institutions. Assemblies have been elected by universal suffrage, whose tendencies have been reactionary and undemocratic, and who have been supported in this reactionary policy by an effective public opinion. Or the French people have, by means of a plebiscite, delegated their sovereign power to an imperial dictator, whose whole political system was based on a deep suspicion of the source of its own authority. A particular group of political institutions or course of political action may, then, be representative of the popular will, and yet may be undemocratic. Popular sovereignty is self-contradictory, 
unless it is expressed in a manner favorable to its own perpetuity and integrity the assertion of the doctrine of popular sovereignty is consequently rather the beginning than the end of democracy there can be no democracy where the people do not rule but government by the people is not necessarily democratic the popular will must in a democratic state be expressed somehow in the interest of democracy itself and we have not traveled very far towards a satisfactory conception of democracy until this democratic purpose has received some definition in what way must a democratic state behave in order to contribute to its own integrity the ordinary american answer to this question is contained in the assertion of lincoln that our government is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal lincoln's phrasing of the principle was due to the fact that the obnoxious and undemocratic system of negro slavery was uppermost in his mind when he made his gettysburg address but he meant by his assertion of the principle of equality substantially what is meant today by the principle of equal rights for all and special privileges for none government by the people has its natural and logical complement in government for the people every state with a legal framework must grant certain rights to individuals and every state in so far as it is efficient must guarantee to the individual that his rights as legally defined are secure but an essentially democratic state consists in the circumstance that all citizens enjoy these rights equally if any citizen or any group of citizens enjoys by virtue of the law any advantage over their fellow citizens then the most sacred principle of democracy is violated on the other hand a community in which no man or no group of men are granted by law any advantage over their fellow citizens is the type of the perfect and fruitful democratic state society is organized politically for the benefit of all the people such an organization may permit radical differences among individuals in the opportunities and possessions they actually enjoy but no man would be able to impute his own success or failure to the legal framework of society every citizen would be getting a square deal such is the idea of the democratic state which the majority of good americans believe to be entirely satisfactory it would endure indefinitely because it seeks to satisfy every interest essential to associated life the interest of the individual is protected because of the liberties he securely enjoys the general social interest is equally well protected because the liberties enjoyed by one or by a few are enjoyed by all thus the individual and the social interests are automatically harmonized the virile democrat in pursuing his own interest under the law is contributing effectively to the interest of society while the social interest consists precisely in the promotion of these individual interests in so far as they can be equally exercised the divergent demands of the individual and the social interest can be reconciled by grafting the principle of equality on the thrifty tree of individual rights and the ripe fruit thereof can be gathered merely by shaking the tree it must be admitted also that the principle of equal rights like the principle of ultimate popular political responsibility is the expression of an essential aspect of democracy there is no room for permanent legal privileges in a democratic state such privileges may be and frequently are defended on many excellent grounds they may unquestionably contribute for a time to social and economic efficiency and to individual independence but whatever advantage may be derived from such permanent discriminations 
must be abandoned by a democracy. It cannot afford to give any one class of its citizens a permanent advantage, or to others a permanent grievance. It ceases to be a democracy, just as soon as any permanent privileges are conferred by its institutions or its laws, and this equality of right and absence of permanent privilege is the expression of a fundamental social interest. But the principle of equal rights, like the principle of ultimate popular political responsibility, is not sufficient, and because of its insufficiency, results in certain dangerous ambiguities and self-contradictions. American political thinkers have always repudiated the idea that by equality of rights, they meant anything like equality of performance or power. The utmost varieties of individual power and ability are bound to exist, and are bound to bring about many different levels of individual achievement. Democracy both recognizes the right of the individual to use his powers to the utmost, and encourages him to do so by offering a fair field and, in cases of success, an abundant reward. The democratic principle requires an equal start in the race, while expecting at the same time an unequal finish. But Americans who talk in this way seem wholly blind to the fact that under a legal system which holds private property sacred there may be equal rights, but there cannot possibly be any equal opportunities for exercising such rights. The chance which the individual has to compete with his fellows and take a prize in the race is vitally affected by material conditions over which he has no control. It is as if the competitor in a marathon cross-country run were denied proper nourishment or proper training, and was obliged to toe the mark against rivals who had every benefit of food and discipline. Under such conditions he is not as badly off as if he were entirely excluded from the race. With the aid of exceptional strength and intelligence he may overcome the odds against him and win out. But it would be absurd to claim, because all the rivals towed the same mark, that a man's victory or defeat depended exclusively on his own efforts. Those who have enjoyed the benefits of wealth and thorough education start with an advantage which can be overcome only in very exceptional men, men so exceptional, in fact, that the average competitor without such benefits feels himself disqualified for the contest. Because of the ambiguity indicated above, different people with different interests, all of them good patriotic Americans, draw very different inferences from the doctrine of equal rights. The man of conservative ideas and interests means by the rights, which are to be equally exercised, only those rights which are defined and protected by the law, the more fundamental of which are the rights to personal freedom and to private property. The man of radical ideas, on the other hand, observing, as he may very clearly, that these equal rights cannot possibly be made really equivalent to equal opportunities, bases upon the same doctrine a more or less drastic criticism of the existing economic and social order, and sometimes of the motives of its beneficiaries and conservators. The same principle, differently interpreted, is the foundation of American political orthodoxy and American political heterodoxy. The same measure of reforming legislation, such as the new interstate commerce law, seems to one party a wholly inadequate attempt to make the exercise of individual rights a little more equal, while it seems to others an egregious violation of the principle itself. What with reforming legislation on the one hand and the lack of it on the other, the one sweet air of the American political mansion is soured by complaints. Privileges and discrimination seek to lurk in every political and economic corner. The people are appealing to the state to protect them, 
against the usurpations of the corporations and the bosses. The government is appealing to the courts to protect the shippers against the railroads. The corporations are appealing to the federal courts to protect them from the unfair treatment of state legislatures. Employers are fighting trades unionism because it denies equal rights to their employers. The unionists are entreating public opinion to protect them against the unfairness of government by injunction. To the free trader, the whole protectionist system seems a flagrant discrimination on behalf of a certain portion of the community. Everybody seems to be clamoring for a square deal, but nobody seems to be getting it. The ambiguity of the principle of equal rights and the resulting confusion of counsel are so obvious that there must be some good reason for their apparently unsuspected existence. The truth is that Americans have not readjusted their political ideas to the teaching of their political and economic experience. For a couple of generations after Jefferson had established the doctrine of equal rights as the fundamental principle of the American democracy, the ambiguity resident in the application of the doctrine was concealed. The Jacksonian Democrats, for instance, who were constantly nosing the ground for a scent of unfair treatment, could discover no example of political privileges except the continued retention of their offices by experienced public servants, and the only case of economic privilege of which they were certain was that of the National Bank. The fact is, of course, that the great majority of Americans were getting a square deal, as long as the economic opportunities of a new country had not been developed and appropriated. Individual and social interests did substantially coincide, as long as so many opportunities were open to the poor and untrained man and as long as the public interest demanded, first of all, the utmost celerity of economic development. But, as we have seen in a preceding chapter, the economic development of the country resulted inevitably in a condition which demanded on the part of the successful competitor either increasing capital, improved training, or a larger amount of ability and energy. With the advent of comparative economic and social maturity, the exercise of certain legal rights became substantially equivalent to the exercise of a privilege, and if equality of opportunity was to be maintained, it could not be done by virtue of non-interference. The demands of the higher law began to diverge from the results of the actual legal system. Public opinion is, of course, extremely loath to admit that there exists any such divergence of individual and social interest, or any such contradiction in the fundamental American principle. Reformers, no less than conservatives, have doggedly determined to place some other interpretation upon the generally recognized abuses, and the interpretation on which they have fastened is that some of the victors have captured too many prizes because they did not play fair. There is just enough truth in this interpretation to make it plausible, although, as we have seen, the most flagrant examples of apparent cheating were due as much to equivocal rules as to any fraudulent intention. But orthodox public opinion is obliged by the necessities of its own situation to exaggerate the truth of its favorite interpretation, and any such exaggeration is attended with gravediggers precisely because the ambiguous nature of the principle itself gives a similar ambiguity to its violations. The cheating is understood as disobedience to the actual law, or as violation of a higher law, according to the interests and preconceptions of the different reformers. But however it is understood, they believe themselves to be upholding some kind of a law, and hence endowed with some kind of a sacred mission. Thus the want of integrity, 
in what is supposed to be the formative principle of democracy results as it did before the civil war in a division of the actual substance of the nation men naturally disposed to be indignant at people with whom they disagree come to believe that their indignation is comparable to that of the lord men naturally disposed to be envious and suspicious of others more fortunate than themselves come to confuse their suspicions with the duty to the society demagogues can appeal to the passions aroused by this prevailing sense of unfair play for the purpose of getting themselves elected to office or for the purpose of passing blundering measures of repression the type of admirable and popular democrat ceases to be a statesman attempting to bestow unity and health on the body politic by prescribing more wholesome habits of living he becomes instead a sublimated district attorney whose duty it is to punish violations both of the actual and the higher law thus he is figured as a kind of an avenging angel but as it happens he is an avenging angel who can find little to avenge and who has no power of flight there is an enormous discrepancy between the promises of these gentlemen and their performances no matter whether they occupy an executive office the editorial chairs of yellow journals or merely the place of public prosecutor and it sometimes happens that public prosecutors who have played the part of avenging angels before election are as mr william travers jerome knows themselves prosecuted after a few years of office by their aggrieved constituents the truth is that these gentlemen are confronted by a task which is in a large measure impossible and which would be either disappointing or dangerous in its results hence it is that continued loyalty to a contradictory principle is destructive of a wholesome public sentiment and opinion a wholesome public opinion in a democracy is one which keeps a democracy sound and whole and it cannot prevail unless the individuals composing it recognize mutual ties and responsibilities and responsibilities which lie deeper than any differences of interest and idea no formula whose effect on public opinion is not binding and healing and unifying has any substantial claim to consideration as the essential and formative democratic idea belief in the principle of equal rights does not bind heal and unify public opinion its effect rather is confusing distracting and at worst disintegrating a democratic political organization has no immunity from grievances they are a necessary result of a complicated and changing industrial and social organism what is good for one generation will often be followed by consequences that spell deprivation for the next what is good for one man or one class of men will bring ills to other men or classes of men what is good for the community as a whole may mean temporary loss and a sense of injustice to a minority all grievances from any cause should receive full expression in a democracy but inasmuch as the righteously discontented must be always with us the fundamental democratic principle should above all counsel mutual forbearance and loyalty the principle of equal rights encourages mutual suspicion and disloyalty it tends to attribute individual and social ills for which general moral economic and social causes are usually in large measure responsible to individual wrongdoing and in this way it arouses and intensifies that personal and class hatred which never in any society lies far below the surface men who have grievances are inflamed into anger and resentment in claiming what they believe to be their rights 
they are in their own opinion acting on behalf not merely of their interests but of an absolute democratic principle their angry resentment becomes transformed in their own minds into righteous indignation and there may be turned loose upon the community a horde of self-seeking fanatics like unto those soldiers in the religious wars who robbed and slaughtered their opponents in the service of god end of chapter seven section one Chapter 7, Section 1